You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. To a Louse, On Seeing One on a Lady's Bonnet at Church by Robert Burns Ha! Where are you going, ye crowlin' furly? Your impudence protects you, sarly. I canna say, but ye stunt rarely. Our grouse and lice, though faith I fear ye dine but sparely, on sick a place. Ye ugly, creepin', blasted wonner, detested, shunned by sunt and sinner, how dare ye set your fit upon her, say fine a lady. Go somewhere else and seek your dinner, on some poor body. Swith, in some beggar's half it squattle, there ye may creep and sprawl and sprattle, with her kindred jumping cattle in shoals and notions, where horn nor bane ne'er door unsettle your thick plantations. Now hold you there, ye're out to sight, below the fatrals snug and tight, na faith ye yet, ye'll not be right, till ye've got on it the vera topmost. Towering height, O oh, Mrs. Bonnet. My sooth, right bold ye set your nose out, As plump and grey as ony grows it, Oh, for some rank mercurial roset, Or fell red smedum, I'd gie you sick a hearty dose out, What dress your drodum? I would no been surprised to spy You on old wife's flining toy. Or Ablin's some bit doody boy on wild coat. But Mrs. Fine, Lenardi, fie! How dare you do it? Oh, Jenny, dinna toss your head and set your beauties ah abrid. Ye little ken what cursed speed the blasties makin. Thy winks and finger ends, I dread, are notice taken. Oh, would some power the gifty ye is! To see ourselves as others see us, it would fray money a blunder free us, and foolish notion, what airs in dress and gait would lay us, and even devotion. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet. That, of course, was not Garrett Ashley Mullet. That was Robert Burns, famous poet of Scotland, and a funny story about that poem. That actually is the poem from which something my grandpa Mullet often would quote the very last couple of lines. Oh, for the gift to gee us, to see ourselves as others see us. Or, oh, what some power the gift to gee us. Maybe I misheard him all that time before he passed away. But he used to quote those two lines there from the very end of the poem and the context (laughs) as I recall was always that he had just said something or someone had just said something that had fallen flat there was an intended effect maybe to be funny or to be smart or to be insightful and it did not have the effect what had been spoken it was ignored overlooked or didn't come out right it was embarrassing But the point of those stanzas there 
is that sometimes we put on airs and sometimes we think rather more highly of ourselves than we ought. And if we could only see how we look to other people, perhaps we would not put on such airs. Perhaps it would give us a dose of humility and that would be good for us. And uh, there you go. But this episode being episode 436, today being Friday, July 22nd, 2022, I'd like to talk about nefesh and the spirit and animal life. Actually, I am rather fascinated by animals myself. I always have been. And I read two stories in the past two days, one yesterday, one today, both of them, interestingly enough, in the vicinity of the state of Alabama here in the U.S., one of them having to do with a lion and a lioness, another one having to do with a 400-pound eagle ray. But first of all, the situation with the Birmingham Zoo, a longtime beloved lioness who's been there for years and years and years, had a mate who passed away a year or two ago. And so she's been alone ever since, or was alone, uh, until they introduced a male lion who was supposed to keep her company. Uh, So this was a report from the Daily Wire. Lots of other news outlets have picked it up as well. So you could read about it many places, I'm sure. But This recently arrived male lion at the Birmingham Zoo within minutes of being introduced to her, to the exhibit, attacked and killed the lioness. Again, the lioness had been alone since I think 2021 when her mate died and the male lion who was brought in to provide companionship for her ended up very quickly attacking and uh, wounding her so badly that she succumbed to her wounds. At least the reporting from the Daily Wire says that staff at the zoo tried to intervene quickly and to give her medical care, but she succumbed to her wounds and passed away. And they are all just devastated. Now, here's a question for you. Can we call what the male lion did in this story in this incident, immoral. Can we call what the male lion did immoral? Or if you and I, which I think we do, I certainly do, if we feel profoundly uncomfortable with what happened here, what is the correct term or what is the correct moniker or what is the correct feeling that we feel about a story like this? Okay, so that's the first incident, the first animal news item that I read yesterday and today. The second one, I actually woke up this morning and I wasn't quite ready to get out of bed just yet, in part because I had seen what time it was and in part because I remembered what time the coffee maker would automatically run and I didn't really feel like getting out of bed until I could go directly to the coffee maker and get my cup of coffee. So I loitered in bed and grabbed my phone and I happened to find another news story at the Daily Wire. This one was about a family 
Off the coast of Alabama, I don't know what it is with Alabama on Friday, but both of these stories, I believe, took place on Friday in and around Alabama. But a 400-pound eagle ray, and now we're talking those big flappy fish uh, creatures of the ocean, a 400-pound eagle ray jumped into a family's boat and experts, scientists, marine biologists suppose that the eagle ray was probably trying to get away from a predator or something. It was probably alarmed by something that was chasing after it. But this eagle ray got stuck, long and short of it. And the family, meanwhile, is trying to get this 400-pound eagle ray out of the boat but struggling because it's this big, heavy, slippery creature. And if I were them, I would be a little bit intimidated by a big 400-pound, you know, flappy sea fish that uh, had just crashed the party, if you will. Uh, And so it took them some time, and they almost sank uh, because of how it was throwing the ship, the boat, um, off balance, uh, but they did end up getting this ray back into the water. And then they noticed that the ray had given birth to several babies on the deck of the boat. And unfortunately, none of those babies survived. They all had expired. The bodies of the Eagle Ray babies have since been donated to the Dauphin Island Sea Lab for research purposes. Uh, And so it's not a total tragedy and a total loss, I suppose, in a certain sense, uh, if you will. But here's the question. Can we call what happened there uh, tragic in any sense? Or again, as with the story of the lioness being attacked and killed at the Birmingham Zoo, What is the word to describe how we feel about a story like this? Now, maybe some of us feel absolutely nothing whatsoever because, you know, maybe some of us uh, are just desensitized in general to animal death. Uh, We think nothing of it. Maybe we work in uh, ag, for instance, or maybe we hunt quite a lot. But, you know, I could say this as somebody who has hunted a fair amount, not in uh, the past few years, but I did hunt quite a lot prior to us moving here to Colorado. Uh, There is a sadness that you feel with the death of an animal, certainly a sadness that I feel. And I I know from reading, let's say, Stephen Ranella's Meat Eater book, uh, he's a hunter and a, a bit of a philosopher, and he waxes eloquent about the psychology and the philosophy of hunting and how human civilization has developed in relation to hunting, what it means that we would hunt these creatures out in the wild, bring home their uh, bodies <laughs> uh, for meat and for clothing and for tools. You know, that it's a very common thing if you read him that we would feel a sadness about even intentionally taking the life of an animal or seeing one animal take the life of another animal or seeing 
an accident happened to an animal and the animal expires. So there's a feeling that's common to man, at least most, when animals die. And where this relates to the broader subject of our episode is, again, as I've said recently, I am reading Gavin Ortland's Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation. And yesterday, I finished up chapter four. I am three quarters of the way through now. I just renewed the uh, book on Hoopla, and I should be finished with it, I think, probably in the next day or two, or over the weekend at least. But chapter four has to do with animal death, and was it present in the world prior to the fall of man? What does Augustine have to say about this? Uh, For one, Gavin Ortland makes much of Augustine warning against self-referential assumptions. And what Ortland, at least, seems to me to take this to mean is that we ought not to refer to ourselves overmuch as to how we feel when animals die or how we feel about animals dying. In essence, if I may, animal death is good if God says it's good is an argument that could be made. That isn't necessarily Augustine's position. It isn't necessarily his view that God says animal death is good, but more so his position is if God says animal death is good, well then it is. And so it's in the realm of possibility among the competing theories. If God said that animal death was good and that a lot of it preceded the fall of man, then that would be what it is. Even yes, before the fall of man. But I don't like that. And I'll tell you why. I I don't like positing that caution regarding self-referential arguments uh, works inordinately against the young earth creationist. I I would say the caution against self-referential arguments also equally applies to those who would say, because animal death is a matter of course now, therefore, I think it's more reasonable that it's always been. Because I observe animal death in the present, and it has been uh, a part of recorded human history for thousands of years, all of recorded human history, therefore, it always has been, and it always will be. Now, more can be said uh, than just that, and more should be said than just that. More should be said than just, ah, well, yes, same to you, buddy, right, with regards to cautions against self-referential arguments. But just briefly, I want to read for you what Wikipedia has to say about nefesh. Nefesh is a term that is important here. And I'll explain why here, but first, let's define nefesh. According to Wikipedia, nefesh is a biblical Hebrew word which occurs in the Hebrew Bible. The word refers to the aspects of sentience, and human beings and other animals are both described as having nefesh. Plants 
as an example of live organisms are not referred in the Bible as having nefesh. The term is literally soul, although it is commonly rendered as life in English translations. One view is that nefesh relates to sentient being without the idea of life, and that rather than having a nefesh, a sentient creation of God is a nefesh. In Genesis 2, 7, the text is not that Adam was given a nefesh, but that Adam became a living nefesh. Nefesh, when put with another word, can detail aspects related to the concept of nefesh. With ruach, spirit, it describes a part of mankind that is immaterial, like one's mind, emotions, will, intellect, personality, and conscience, as in Job 7.11. Great place to get a slushy, by the way. Biblical use, here was a subsection in the Wikipedia article on nefesh. The word nefesh occurs 754 times in the Hebrew Bible. The first four times nefesh is used in the Bible, it is used exclusively to describe animals. Genesis 1.20, sea life. Genesis 1.21, great sea life. <laughs> Genesis 1.24, land creatures. Genesis 1.30, birds and land creatures. At Genesis 2.7, nefesh is used as a description of man. Job 12.7-10 parallels the words ruah, and nefesh, quote, in his hand is the life, nefesh, of every living thing and the spirit, ruah, of every human being, end quote. The Hebrew term nefesh, chaya, is often translated living soul. Chaya alone is often translated living thing or animal. Often nefesh is used as saving your life. Nefesh then is referring to complete person's life, as in Joshua 2.13, Isaiah 44.20, 1 Samuel 19.11, Psalm 6.5, 49.15, In Greek, the word psyche is the closest equivalent to the Hebrew nefesh. In its turn, the Latin word is anima, etymon of the word animal. So the Latin word here is anima, which is where we get the word animal from. So did you catch all that? <laughs> if you did, animal is pretty well established as being what we are. You and I are animals in a sense. And that bothers a lot of people because I think in the past 150 years, thereabouts, thanks to the work of Charles Darwin, 150 to 200 years, the animal quality of man has been overemphasized to the exclusion of our being created in God's image. None of the other animals, if you will, if man is an animal, none of the other animals is created in God's image. And that's an important distinction to make. But how far do we go in that direction in saying, ah, well, we're created in God's image, therefore we're not really animals. Uh, but this is, I think, one of those mysteries, actually. I think this is one of those mysteries that is hard to understand, and it's okay for it to take some time to really wrestle with. 
Augustine certainly took a long time to wrestle with it. And so also should we. I don't suppose that he had it all figured out. And neither do I think he supposed he had it all figured out. But it's okay for this to take some time to wrestle with. Be more concerned about an overhasty conclusion. For instance, that we are all just material and that's all. We are all just material and that's all we are is material. Be careful also, on the other hand, about over-spiritualizing what we are. We are spirit. We are created in the image of Almighty God. As Christians, we are a part of the kingdom of God, and therefore, we are not a part of the animal kingdom. Well, does that follow, right? Does that follow? Maybe not in the ways that we will think it does, if we're too quick to draw a conclusion. I'm not pretending to be an expert myself. So if you are listening to this podcast episode, expecting you know, 30 minutes and you're going to have this all figured out, because I have this all figured out and I communicate it just absolutely perfectly to you. And now you got it and you're welcome. You know, think again, right? Think again. But what I do want to do is I do want to introduce some important questions that I think there are answers to, and I think we would be better served to get the answers to, and to understand, <clears throat> at least better than we do, the answers to. I think that the Darwinian model for understanding man is deeply flawed, where as it has had time to evolve itself or devolve itself, if you will, it has said, we are animals, and that's all. And insofar as we've spread out uh, and been especially prolific, if we're just animals, we are an invasive species, and we really need to be curbed. If we are just animals, well then, by all means, whatever we would do to some other invasive species to get it out of a place, uh we might just as well do to one another and to ourselves for the good of the planet. Now, what creature acts that way for the good of the planet? Uh, I would love to hear an answer to from the people who have that attitude. Good luck trying to reason that one. If we're just animals, then exactly what is your argument for us having this special uh, responsibility to earth. Do the creatures, do the animals have this special responsibility to earth? Uh, if so, how do you reckon? How do you, how do you reason? How did you arrive at that conclusion? It's almost as if you're assuming a kind of dominion that we've been given over the earth and then reasoning from that, that we have a responsibility, but I think you've got it muddied. Uh, if I may, so the Darwinians, they have gone too far. And those they have trained up for generations, children turning into adults, maturing into adults, believing that we're just animals, you and me, baby, we're just mammals. You know, those who were trained up that way and then raised their children after them to believe that we're just animals, just like any other animal, just smarter, more technologically advanced, 
more sophisticated. You know, they, they've gone too far. Now, the pendulum swings where Christians see that the naturalists, the materialists, the secularists, the godless have gone too far, and they go too far the other direction sometimes. And then they say that essentially we are just spiritual. And yes, they would give lip service to the idea that we are material as well, that we are physical, but they look at our soul are having a ruach as being the most important part of us. If we have a soul, then that's all that matters. I would put forward a suggestion that it need not be either or. Very similar to how Augustine reasons that we need not interpret Genesis as either literal, in the sense that we mean literal, when it describes the days of creation. Those are 24-hour periods, one after another after another, morning and evening. Or, on the other hand, a figurative, poetical, symbolic interpretation. We need not choose one or the other. It can be both and. Well, so also here. Yes, there's a mystery to it, but we need not suppose that we are either material or spiritual, but we can't be both. We are both. Not quite the same way, but I I would say as a type of mystery, which is similar, when we read that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, was fully God and fully man, when we see that in the creeds, there's a mystery to it. There's a thing about that that is hard to understand. How can God be distinct, other, holy, infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnisapient, and yet, in the person of Christ, be fully man as well? How can God the Son be fully God and fully man in the person of Christ Jesus and be no less God and no less man by virtue of being in one person, in one being, one Christ. Do we lose something? Do we misunderstand ourselves and one another if we think only of ourselves as material, as biological organisms, skin and muscles and tissue and bone, if we think only about those aspects of ourselves and we deny that there is a soul. Or, on the flip side, if we say, ah, well, I have a soul, that's all. That's all that matters. Yes. Simple answer is yes. But I do wonder, I do wonder, take, for instance, the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He becomes arrogant, conceited, haughty, proud, and judgment from the Most High God at a certain point, is that essentially he will resemble, he'll lose his mind, but he will resemble a wild animal. His hair is going to grow out long. His fingernails are going to grow out long. He's going to go and graze in a field like a cow. And he will be ridiculed because he will be ridiculous. And that is the judgment. That is the point. And it will be a sign And a warning and a correction, not only to him, but to others as well, who saw how high and lifted up he was in his soul 
how proud and arrogant he was that God needed to oppose him. But his being reminded that he is an animal in some sense is a corrective for arrogance, for hubris, for his forgetting himself, for others who were subject to him forgetting themselves perhaps as well. But a couple of questions I've got in no particular order with regards to the idea that there may have been animal death prior to the fall of man. Let's say you believe that mankind is only six to 10,000 years old, following the genealogies, creating a timeline, reverse engineering, or adding backwards. Why does God only give permission to eat the animals after Noah and his family get off the ark? Why is that? Okay, that's a big question in my mind. If animal death is so good, no big deal, totally fine. Why does God only give permission to eat the animals after they get off the ark? Now, somebody could say, well, you know, they couldn't eat the animals while they're on the ark because then like, that's it. There's no more of this type anymore. There were only two. There's a male and a female for them to be a breeding pair. When they get off, you can't eat them or they will just cease to exist. They will cease to be a part of creation anymore, right? So somebody could say that, but my response would be, you know, there's lots of other possibilities. One possibility being that God doesn't allow man, he doesn't give him permission and a blessing to eat animal life because it's wrong on some level prior to that. You know, we read elsewhere in the Old Testament, God gives prohibition on eating certain kinds of animals because that would be unclean. To touch anything dead would be unclean in some cases, which is to say for it to be unclean is not good in the fullest sense. Now, Augustine makes this argument that something can be good as God says it without being perfect. And also you can have varying degrees of good in a certain sense. I should like to read Augustine myself rather than just taking Gavin Ortland's word for it. No offense, Gavin seemed like a nice guy and very smart, but I should like to read Augustine for myself in this because he is much more comfortable with nuance and ambiguity and he is quoted by all sides. So therefore you could take what he said and, um, run with it. And maybe that's not all he said. Maybe he said quite a lot more that's more even-handed and this was just a passing reference that we're making too much of. Or maybe he was just flat mistaken to imply what he did as he was trying to figure out what to make of this, what to make of Genesis and the creation account. But I think personally, God only giving permission to Noah and his sons and their wives to eat animals after the flood, after they disembarked, is to say that it was not acceptable for man to eat the animals, just like certain kinds of animals specifically were forbidden for Israel to have as food. I would say eating animals at all prayer to God giving the blessing and permission was not okay. Now, the earth was filled with violence, it says, 
prayer to God, deciding to send a flood to destroy all life. Now, it's interesting. It isn't just mankind who is destroyed, except for Noah and his family and the representative creatures. But it is animals also. And that generic of the earth is filled with violence, to my mind, means humans. And yes, when it says in the same chapter, (laughs) there were giants in the land in those days and also afterwards. The Nephilim, so fallen angels, I believe, taking it literally, I think fallen angels were intermarrying with human women. That's what the text reads like to me. And they were having a very epic offspring, you know, kind of like um, ligers, if you will. You know, a lion and a tiger breed, and they will produce a liger. And a liger is larger than either a lion or a tiger. It has attributes and genes from both. I think a very similar thing happened with the Nephilim, the fallen angels and the fallen humanity interbreeding. But if the earth was filled with violence, and that was not so good, it seems at least reasonable to me to suppose that that means that man was being violent against his fellow man, that the Nephilim were part of this violence, the Nephilim were being violent against one another, and also towards mankind, and also towards the animals, and also that the animals were being violent towards mankind and the Nephilim and one another, and that this was not how God intended it to be. And for a further proof, or evidence at least, that this is not how God intended for it to be, ultimately, I would submit for your consideration where we read that the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to restore creation includes the lion laying down with the lamb. And someone can get very symbolic and poetical and metaphorical and figurative with that if they want to, just like they can do so with the Genesis account. And actually, I think that's a further evidence that we don't want to get overly symbolic to the exclusion of taking a literal meaning with the Genesis account, because it will carry forward. Ah, it says that Jesus was born to a virgin. Ah, does that mean literally a virgin? Or could that just mean figuratively? Like she was just a really nice gal. Was she literally a virgin? Um, Stop. (laughs) But where it says that the lion will lay down with the lamb in peace, that, to my mind, is literal. And also, it signifies a spiritual condition for creation. And so also when a male lion attacks a lioness who's a longtime favorite of the zoo and kills her within minutes of being introduced to her, he's supposed to be her companion, but instead he attacks and kills her for the whole staff of the zoo to watch in horror helplessly. That is not good. And whatever sophistry one might want to engage in, to say, ah, well, it's good if God says it's good, is really irrelevant if, in fact, God did not say that was good per se. It's beside the point. Did he say that it was good for the animals to be killing one another like this? No. Actually, for that matter, too, look at animal death 
in the sacrificial system that was pointing forward to Christ? Is it good if death being linked to sin, sin leading to death, and the atoning for sin being linked to the shedding of blood and the loss of life includes even just symbolically, but yes, literally, the death of animals in the Old Testament system, in the Old Covenant. Should that not tell us something? Does that not signify something? And does that not prove that we have a spiritual reality concurrent with a physical reality, a literal and a figurative thing happens all at the same time? Not either or, both and. For that matter, it has been historically a very important point that Christ did not just appear to suffer. He did not just appear to be fully man. He did not just appear to be crucified and to die and to be buried and to rise again on the third day, just as it was written. He did, in fact. He didn't just appear to. He did, in fact. And his having, in fact, done these things in the flesh does not negate their spiritual significance either. For someone, for many actually, all too many these days, something happening physically and in a material sense is taken as proof that it is unspiritual. So we have adopted, it's been the marinade, I think, for many of us in our thinking, we've adopted this idea of the mind-body dualism, which is more common to the Greeks and to the Manichaeans that Augustine was arguing against. Mind-body dualism, what is mental and emotional and spiritual is good, what is physical is corrupt. Well, yes, all of the above is corrupt due to sin and due to our sinful nature now, which we inherit spiritually and physically from Adam, the first Adam. And the restoration that we will get will be a spiritual restoration in Christ, and also a physical restoration in Christ. When it says in the Gospels that Christ went around healing and raising the dead and making the lame to walk and the blind to see and the mute to speak and the deaf able to hear and casting out demons, there was a physical and spiritual reality, both and, not either or. Now, to all this, somebody might say, well, if the animals are so important, then why do we eat them? And to that, I would say, we eat them because God said we could. So there is a disturbing quality, I think, to the realization that animal life has a spirit or is said in the biblical text to have a spirit, a kind of spirit. We have a kind of spirit. It's a different kind. Each life is reproducing after its kind But that word nefesh, I think, can be disturbing to people when they realize maybe some of the sadness, some of the feeling disturbed at the idea of a 400-pound eagle ray giving birth on a family boat and all of the babies dying, you know, maybe some of the feeling disturbed by that is proper. Maybe some of the feeling disturbed by the video that I found when I was looking for more info on the story out of the Birmingham Zoo, I found this video as I was looking for other sources, and it was a safari video. 
in which a lot, I don't know how many there were, maybe a dozen lionesses actually teamed up on a male lion. And it certainly appeared as though they intended to kill him. They all attacked him all at the same time. And he was relatively helpless. And I guess they got bored and they gave up on murdering him, if you will. But he was very much at their mercy. And regardless his being larger than any one of them, they had him outmatched altogether. And so I find this video and I click into it and I, I regretted clicking into it because I'm watching it. I'm just, it's very, very disturbing. It's very disturbing. And yes, Augustine is right. We should be careful about being overly self-referential in our assumption. If we see something like that, we shouldn't assume too much about how we feel about it. And yet, again, that goes both ways. We see something like that, and yes, we're very disturbed. But if we work hard to be not disturbed, and we come up with some this or that about how, well, it's always been like that. These animals are just temporary, perishable. That's their nature. I don't want to feel anything about that, so I won't feel anything about that. There too, we have to be careful not to be overly self-referential. But it's funny. I mean, it's it's funny in a certain sense to be not a vegan or a vegetarian, to believe that it is right and proper to eat meat when it's available, to believe that God said we have permission to do that, to believe that we are animal, and also to believe that we are created in God's image. And that makes us special and distinct to believe that God sometimes uses language to compare us to animals of a certain kind or another to teach us things and that that is important. And yet also to believe that it is wrong if we suppose that we should treat one another the way that animals routinely treat one another, or at least I should say we are in a very dark spot when we suppose that the standard is set by however animals treat each other. That's the bar. Well, that's no bar at all. If that is the bar, then there is no such thing as morality. There is no such thing as good and evil. There is no such thing as truth and falsehood in the sense that the Christian means it. It really is an either or. Either A, there is right and wrong, and this ain't it. Or B, this is it, and there is no such thing as right and wrong. Now, somebody could say, ah, there's a mystery to this too. How is it that God can liken us to animals? He can make Nebuchadnezzar for a season lose his mind and resemble some wild animal or some combination of wild animals to teach him a lesson, to teach others a lesson, to teach us a lesson, to serve as an illustration of how God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. How can that be? And yet also, at the same time, we're not supposed to just do all of what animals do without a second thought. Well, here's where there's an order of operations, just like PEMDAS. Parentheses, exponents, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction. If you get the order of operations mixed up, 
you will not get the same answer to your equation. If God says sometimes that it's correct to compare us to animals, well then embrace that. If God reminds us that we need to behave in light of the fact not only that we ourselves are created in his image, but that our brother, our sister, our neighbor, our child, our wife, our father, our mother are created in his image. If God reminds us that we will one day give an account for how we treat one another and, yes, how we treat ourselves, well then, embrace that. The big idea is not that animals are the be-all, end-all. Either to prove to us how very special we are or to prove to us how unspecial we are. And yet God did have a purpose and does still, must still have a purpose for there being animals here with us. Sometimes in our day, that purpose would seem to be that they are for our food, given that we live in a fallen creation. But does it follow, therefore, that they were always food? Or is there a significance to God only giving permission to eat the animals after the flood? If there was no animal death, birds, reptiles, amphibians, fish, mammals, all alike didn't die, if they were supposed to also fill up the earth and be part of our subduing it, but then they would, once they reached a certain population density, stop reproducing, that also would be good. If they were part of the created order for our enjoyment, because it pleased God, because God God got glory from that, because they were supposed to be in the garden, working it, in creation, working it, then that also would be good. And I think that's what it is. That is that is my view, I will say. And I'm open to considering whether other interpretations of the biblical text are equally valid or more valid based on sound arguments, based on the biblical text. But that is my view in the meantime, because I just don't believe in being a know-nothing. So in closing, to sum up, maybe to repeat myself, I do think we are more animal than the over-spiritualizing crowd remembers very often. We are more like the animals than the over-spiritualizing folk realize or would admit. And I think insofar as God made us like the animals, made us not just like the animals, but animals in a sense, it's right and proper for us to know our place. And to remember that. And so far as the materialists, the naturalists, the godless would suppose that even the concept of a soul is just a projection. It's a lot of random firing of synapses and chemicals and electricity, and it's all just lights and clockwork. We don't actually have a soul because they can't measure it, they can't weigh it, they can't see it per se. Uh, where God did create us according to his word in his image for all that might portend and mean, we do well to understand the importance of that and the significance of that and to factor it in to how we approach life, how we approach one another. Yes, even how we approach God 
yes, how we relate to the animals and to the creation. But I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. Speaking of relating to creation, I should get to work, get to it. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.